Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to Amanda Jennings all about her new novel, The Storm. Uh, It's an exploration of power set in in a Cornish fishing port in the 1990s. We talk about why she likes writing in the frenzy of being against a deadline, always has, probably always will. You can also hear how she's got on writing in lockdown, has being isolated hampered her ideas... Uh, And also, you can hear how she beds in the themes deep into the story. And really, with that, there aren't any rules. It's not an exact science, um, I have to say. It's It's just something I enjoy doing. And I enjoy having, a, you know, I enjoy a book that has a sort of over overarching, overarching theme in terms of emotions and the areas of, of the sort of human condition, I suppose, for want of a better word, um, that I'm exploring. Loads more with Amanda Jennings on the way. Stay there. It's a brand new writer's routine. Yes. Welcome along to Writer's Routine. My name's Dan Simpson. Hello. This is the show where we take a look inside the working day of some of the most successful authors around. I've just realised, uh, if you're listening to us for the first time... Um, the working day maybe doesn't sound like the most exciting thing ever, but I know that if you found us, it's because you are interested in the craft of telling stories. So I promise, uh, if this is the first episode you're listening to, stay there. You will find some advice, some inspiration in this show that will help the way that you tell stories, because we've got an incredible chat. It's with Amanda Jennings. She writes haunting thrillers. They all seem to explore a theme of loneliness and isolation. We talk about why she's drawn to that, why she keeps coming back to that, and how she unpacks that. Now, her new novel is called The Storm, which is set in Cornwall. And if you want loneliness, I mean, Cornwall is a place to find it. I mean, maybe not at the moment, actually. It's the height of summer. Uh, It's heaving down there. I mean, I know it's heaving down there. It took me seven hours to drive like 300 miles back home from there the other day. Uh, Anyway, if you're not from the UK, Cornwall is like the little bit at the very southwest of the country. Uh, it's a stunning county with beautiful coasts, uh, amazing beaches, but also barren wilderness in places too. The story is all about Hannah, who seems to have married the perfect man, but she's controlled by that man, controlled by her husband Nathan when no one sees. And it all centres around a storm that happened years before. 
You can hear more about it in the chat. We also talk about the frenzy of her writing and how she charts the plot or her lack of a plot and how she feels out her ideas. We, we, we talk about what she's learned from, from years of writing and, and storytelling and, and how she's changed her writing routine along the way. And we start, as always, with what Amanda Jennings sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. Mm, okay, well, I'm actually at my desk right now, and um, actually, it's, a, it's much more interesting than it would normally be because yesterday I decided I was having trouble focusing, which I'm sure we'll co- come on to later on. But I decided to print off my cast of characters, so I searched the internet all day, and I now have a wall in front of me that is covered with faces with their names and ages, and also pictures of Cornwall Bodmin Moor. I've got some standing stones and a, a lovely granite farmhouse all pinned to the wall on scraps of paper um piles of books quite messy empty teacups and coffee cups toast plate um and that's it piano behind me where my kids will sometimes practice piano if they're being good are you in are you in a study are you in a spare bedroom how does how does that work we have, um, yeah, we have a sort of, a, a sort of. We're lucky enough to have a sort of space for a, a sort of larger study that, that doubles up as a, you know, a practice room or somewhere where the kids can get, can escape each other and things like that. So it's just sort of an extra room. So I am fortunate in that I have a bit of space, which is great. Aside from this assortment of faces that you managed to find online yesterday, <laughs> uh, what else is there on the wall? Would I find pictures, maybe sources of inspiration yeah. there? Um, yeah, behind me I've got a beautiful. Um, um, a, 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 there's an artist called Jenny Savile who writes quite, who, who paints quite brutal pictures. And I've got one of her, a print of one of her self-portraits behind me, which which um, is sort of all in reds and oranges. And not not everybody's cup of tea, but I, I love it. Um, I've got a couple of little statues of people reading to hopefully inspire me. Um, and that's it, really. I think that's it. We've got lots of books, lots and lots of bookshelves, um, walls of books, which is also lovely, and and a shelving unit above me, which my husband put up a few months ago, um, which was supposed to organise me, but is obviously just carrying more mess. And take, talk, talk me through your desk then. Uh, I'm always fascinated by a writer's desk. It's one of my strange things. Is it a big oaky deal? Is it an Ikea one? What are we talking? nice okay I've never described my desk before so I I could lie and tell you it's immaculately tidy but I'm not going to do that um so it is um a sort of I would say reproduction antique if that makes sense so it's a sort of almost like an old school teacher's desk that you might have at the front so it's got a few little drawers some nice brass handles I don't think it's very valuable but it's sort of you know it's not a modern one it sort of has a an air of tradition about it I suppose yeah I've never really said it's nice a nice sort of burnished sort of what do you call it like a warm oak color is it strewn with notebooks and and then post-it notes oh Dan it is strewn is it strewn (laughs) (laughs) I am very chaotic so it is um it goes through I I have one of those weird people who's quite untidy but finds it quite difficult to concentrate in there so every now and then I'll do a huge tidy up and it'll be beautiful and I'll have some flowers on it and, and put the light on and things and then gradually it descends into chaos so right at the moment we're sort of on the ascendant chaos I think I tidied it about a week and a half ago so yeah we've got a lot of notebooks I, I write uh, again I'm sure we'll talk about notebooks they're very important to me well so but, let's, let's talk about that now Amanda so yeah. how, how you say they're important to you how do notebooks kind of work their way into your writing day well, uh, so they, they are fundamental. So I would call myself um, a planner. Uh, sorry, 
not a planner, a pantser, as Stephen King would call it, writing by the seat of my pants. So I don't, uh, I don't do any detailed planning before I write. So um, I will, I will have a, a vague idea. Um, and again, we can talk about any of this in more detail if you'd like to at any stage. But so I, I will have a vague idea and a sort of shadowy cast of characters. Um, and then, and then I, I sort of launch into writing the first draft, and I don't stop until I write until I reach the end. But what I do have before that, and and it can be up to sort of it can be months actually, it can be sort of three, four, five months worth of of notebooks where I've got all sorts of things, sort of scenes or snatches of dialogue that have come to me. Um, if I know what what themes I want to want to be writing to writing in my book, which I generally do, um, I start to sort of just to sort of think around themes like that and work out how each of these characters could, for example, um, you, you know, demonstrate some guilt or some, because uh, I like to have echoes throughout. So some of the characters will be struggling with one of the themes in a major way, but I also like to just draw a little bit of a spotlight onto sort of, you know, say we took guilt, so someone might have done something for which they carry a huge amount of guilt, but then I also like to see little characters struggling with guilt in minor ways throughout that. So that that would work as well. So notebooks are a great place for that. Um, and they're very scruffy. I have them lots of sort of, you know, asterisks and arrows. And, and, and I, again, a little bit like starting off with a tidy desk. My notebook always starts with a very tidy uh, front page where it says, you know, the title of my book um, in, the, in my very best handwriting. And then a few pages in, it starts to just disintegrate again to chaos. Aside from, and I think I know the answer to this already, just because how much of a pantsy that you say you are, aside from the faces that you've now got all over your wall, if I were to walk into your writing space, into this room, um, when you're in the middle of a, of working, would I have any clues to the story that you are telling? Are we talking post-it notes everywhere? Have you got little ideas jotted on the walls? How does that no. no, none at all. So you wouldn't have a clue. Um, the, actually, actually, my, my youngest daughter, she's 14. My youngest daughter came in today um, and to ask me something about school. So obviously I told you that I'd only put the pictures up yesterday. So she came in and sort of gave me a kiss and then noticed the pictures and went, wow, this looks like an interesting book because the, this book is full of um, – it's, it's there's part of it that's set um, – uh, this is the new book, not the one that's coming out. This is the new book I'm writing at the moment, and it's set, partly set on a sort of um, an off-grid commune um, in the in the early 2000s. Um, so all my pictures are of cool sort of dreadlocked hippies and um, farmer types and and people that look quite interesting and unusual. Um, so you would you would probably. And then there's obviously, as I said, the, the pictures of Bodmin Moore as well. So you'd probably get a good idea of setting and, and, a, and a taste of the characters, um, but you wouldn't have a clue about the book. No, I have no post-its, no index cards, nothing there at all. It's all, unfortunately, in my head and scattered around in a very, um, in a very disorganised way in various notebooks. You definitely hit your nail on the head there by specifying that it was a writing day. So I think I do, I'm someone who needs a deadline. Um, I like to work with a little bit of pressure. So I I, I don't, I know that I have friends who will write and I'll write a certain amount of words every single day throughout the year. Um, I'm not someone who does that. I need to sort of feel the pressure and the bite to get a draft out. So as I said before, with the notebook stage, it's a sort of a bit more airy-fairy. But if we have a writing day... Um, I, you know, I will, there is a lot of procrastination, so I, I don't know whether you want me to sort of 
I might add that in for some flour. Right, so we get up and I get the children to school and then I will immediately walk the dog. And I generally, when I'm right in the center of a book, that time will be a good time for me to have a think about what I'm going to write and about the scene that might be coming coming next and if I'm not in that the throes that desperate throes of writing then that will be a time where I'll probably pull up Twitter or Facebook and and just sort of potter and um and and distract I'm very easily distracted so on a writing day yeah we've planned the scene um and then I get back and it'll take me a little bit of time just to sort of tidy away breakfast and I don't know clean down the kitchen and just sort of get myself together feed the chickens um we have a couple of ponies here as well so I go out and I'll feed them and I'll check them all over and um, so it's quite sort of bucolic (laughs) bucolic morning I suppose lots of animals and lots of fresh air and then I will sit at my desk and I will punctuate incredibly frenzied writing with cups of tea um, and the cups of tea will invariably go cold as I've left them to overbrew or got distracted by writing. So then I will put it in the microwave and take another break. And I will invariably find that same cup of tea then cold in the microwave. And um, I will sit at my desk and be frenzied writing and or distracted by social media until about three o'clock. And then I'll probably go and take the dog out for another walk and then prepare for the children to come back home. And then I will probably do a hangout with the children and do all their bits and pieces and enjoy them and do a bit more with the animals. And then at about probably seven o'clock when my husband comes home, and this is a traditional thing. I used to do this when the children were small. My children are, are older now, so it's less, lost its relevance. But as soon as he would walk in from, from work, I would leave him to spend some time with the children and I would do another hour and a half of writing. And then if I'm in the middle of a first draft, I will print off whatever I've, I've written today. And I does need to be a whole chapter for me to do this. I can't give my husband partial chapters, but I'll try and get a whole chapter written in that day. And I will thrust it under my poor husband and long-suffering husband's nose and jump around until he promises to read the pages and then tell me exactly the bits that he likes and doesn't like (laughs) I'll watch his face for every reaction so I need if I've written something sad I need to see that in his eyes and if I've written something that I think think might be a little bit witty I want to see him smile so it's quite exhausting being my husband poor man how big a part does that play I know you've said you've said you've done it for for quite a while now ever since the the kids were young um how much are you judging from your husband's reaction if if he said well this this could be a little bit better is is it a case of always listening to him or is it very much for, for quite a lot of it you know best um absolutely i mean he 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 is incredibly integral to to the um to the process i have to admit he i, I started writing when I started writing the first unpublished book when my second child was a baby. So that's 18 years ago. So and, and Chris and I met at university. So I, I I do really value his opinion. And he's not the type of person to take that sort of responsibility lightly. So he's not going to tell me that it's good if he doesn't think it's good. Um, what he does do, which is always disconcerting, is I'll write and it's possibly isn't the first draft because I know my first drafts aren't very good but sort of a couple of edits in a couple of rewrites in I'll hand him the pages and he'll say yeah you know looking forward to you putting the magic in or however however he phrases it that day 
and I will be affronted because I'll think that it's done and my the lazy side of me wants it to be done and I will know that it's not quite there yet. So he doesn't come out with overt criticism, but he will tell me. So, for example, first draft stage, he read a chapter the other, a couple of days ago and he was like, mm, yeah, it was a bit that dragged in the middle. And and what's interesting about it is, is I know it dragged in the middle. I was hoping I might sneak it past him and he wouldn't notice, in which case I could I could ignore it. But I knew I knew that it dragged in the middle. So um, I find his input very, very useful. It's a it's a it's a, it's a benefit of our relationship that we sort of do trust each other when it comes to uh, to things, you know, to, to things that are like that that are important. Rather, a rather wide, possible philosophical question here, but why do you let yourself get away with it until someone else brings it up? Like you would just think that, I mean, you're four books in now, and if you know this about yourself, um, if you know that, hang on, this this chapter is dragging at the in the middle. Maybe it's not good enough. Why are you? Why do you think? And this is not a criticism to you at all. I'm just, you know, big picture stuff. Why do you? Why why are you letting yourself get away with it? Well, that you're very, I mean, that's a very um, astute point. I think, to be honest, I probably, I probably wouldn't let myself get away with it. Um, I might sort of not necessarily address it quite so quickly, but I, I rewrite many, many times. So I'm, I'm going to pick that up at some stage. And if I don't pick it up, my agent will. And if my agent doesn't pick it up, my editor will. And if my editor doesn't pick it up, then we're not going to worry about it. <laughs> so people on Amazon will. <laughs> well, you know, I think, it, you know, you're not going to, this is, this is, as I, I'm just about to bring out book five. And, and I have to say after, you know, my first one came out in 2012 and uh, terribly, terribly affected by, by readers. And I have to say now, now I, I've got a little bit more experience under my belt. I, I do know that you can't please all the people all the time. So I have to, I have to, I have to, you can't think of every single reader. You have to think of your ideal reader. For, for me, um, in this case, I write what I would like to read, but my ideal reader is, is my husband. Like, um, again, I have good pedigree with that. I think Stephen King's first reader, his ideal reader is, is his wife. And I think that happens with lots of writers as well. Um, but if it doesn't make it, if, if it makes it past my myself my husband my agent to my editor I think you know we're, we're, we're sort of hopefully quite sure that we've that we're doing something right at least um possibly not for everybody but hopefully for the for most <laughs> so I'm writing currently writing book six so I've, I've um four books are published one's coming out in three weeks and then I'm now writing book six so and actually I had two unpublished books before um before my first one was published so I, I feel a little bit more like I slightly know what I'm doing so yes exactly I think when I'm really in a first draft so I will I will write my first draft very quickly or not very quickly sort of relatively quickly and then I will edit for months so my first drafts probably take anywhere between six weeks and, and 12 weeks and and then I'll edit for some of the books have, I've edited, you know, as much as 18 months and, and rewritten for 18 months. Um, but if I was really going for it, um, I can write up to sort of, I don't know, between two and a half to 4,000 words a day, um, which is quite decent. Um, I think I, I wouldn't want to put, if I was in, in the middle of a, of, of, of a first draft and I was trying to get that done in, in, in one hit, then I wouldn't want to be going underneath 1,500 words a day. How do you know when you're done? of a day you know you, you say you get to three o'clock and then you need to go and pick the pick the kids up or whatever um but is there yeah. a point in your writing where you're willing to kind of let that rest for the time being 
Oh yeah, I'm not. I'm not very obsessive actually. So basically, I work in chapters. So um, I try and let's say we're so just. I mean, as I said, it, it, there is a variation in this. I'm not a, a very planned person, but if, if my my books are sort of between forty and fifty chapters long, for example, between ninety and a hundred thousand words, um, we're sort of looking at. Uh, if I wanted to do my first draft in six weeks, ideally I'd be liking to liking to get a, a chapter out every day for that period of frenzied writing. Now, I am putting a caveat in that because I haven't been able to write like I normally write with with everything that's going on around us and outside of us. It's been I found it quite distracting, and I'm actually doing a lot, trying to do a lot in my community. So I'm sort of not quite so in the study as I was. Um, so yeah, so actually, I, I write in chapters, and that's a really good question. So I, I won't try and finish a chapter by three o'clock, but if I'm if I'm nearly there, that'll be the moment that I was talking to you about earlier, where I will my husband will walk home, and then I will finish that chapter and try and give it to him before, you know, before when after he's um, put the children to bed, and you know when he can when he can give me some some time. So actually, if you think about it. Uh, you know, he's coming home at seven o'clock and I have then actually got two hours that I could write and finish my chapter. And that's plenty of time for me to, you know, to even if I had to do 1500, 2000 words, I would have time in that two hours. So I can sort of use that that time to finish up whatever I want him to read that day. How long has it taken you to, to realise how you work best. You say that, that you quite like being up against a deadline. You like this furious, frenzied writing, how you describe it. How, how long were you into a, a writing career when you realised that this is how you, you do work best? And what was it that kind of set you along that, that method of thinking? Well, actually, I mean, we're talking way before. I've I've always worked. I've always worked up to to the end point. So I'm not someone who has a nice piece of work sitting on their desk to hand in to a teacher. Um, you know, three days before you were supposed to give your homework in on a Tuesday, for example, I will be doing that. You know, all the way up and probably on the bus to school <laughs> would have been doing my homework. I remember very clearly. You know, I wrote a ten thousand word dissertation uh, for my degree, and I remember very clearly um, standing in the queue of the binding you know the, the stationers where we had our degrees oh, sorry our dissertations bound and chatting to to a young man in the in the queue and that was at that was at a quarter to midnight where the book where the dissertations had to be handed in on midnight that night so it's just the way I've always worked I just I just need you know again someone when I was taking exams a levels GCSEs you know any of those exams I was someone who when they said put your pens down I would still be writing or doing my final full stop it's just um you know I I, I always looked I always thought people who who finished a couple of minutes before the end of a question in an exam and had time to read through I thought well that you know I found that quite unusual <laughs> so um it's just been the way I've worked and then I, I started writing um, when the children were small, when my, when my, uh, as I said to you, my second child was a baby. So I would write in any little moments that I had spare. So if she napped, I would take out, I would ignore the housework, I'd ignore everything, and I would take out my writing. If um, we were traveling in the car and she was in the car sleep and uh, sorry the car seat and fell asleep I would pull over in a lay-by and bring out my edit notes or my hard copy or my you know a notebook and I would write until she woke up because I figured it was easier to drive with a baby who was unsettled or crying than it was to write so I think I've always found that those limited amounts of time focus my mind and 
the flip side of that is I'm very um, capable of stopping mid-sentence. So likewise, if if some if a baby woke up and needed me, um, I would be able to stop mid-sentence almost. Um, you know, then go back into my into my role as mother or whichever role I was there for fulfilling at that moment, and then come back at whatever time and take up from that from that half-written sentence. So it, it became it was an opportunistic uh, way that it developed really because I didn't have any other option. I didn't have a nice peaceful house. You know, I had three children and lots of animals, and a husband who was working from seven o'clock until eight o'clock every day, and 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 so it was just something that I I had to do. I had to find those moments myself. But now you don't need to find those moments, and I, I'm, I'm you know I'm whatever works for you works for you. That's perfectly fine. But now you don't need to ha- uh, find those moments. Now the opportunities for you to write, I would imagine, are quite extensive. Ha- having public, having published so many books, why are you? So why are you now still forcing yourselves into these situations where you do have to write frenzied? And and what what would happen? Do you think if you if you didn't do that, if you just sat down every day and said, right, I'm going to get a thousand words down a day, and you know, it will take me as long as it does. What what would happen then? Well, first of all, I think in answer to your first part of the question, I think it's pure weakness of character that I haven't changed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think um, I just don't think I'm made that way. I don't think I'm 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 not organised. In, in anything that I do, I, I, I am um, someone who you can rely on. I don't like being late particularly. So when I say deadlines, that doesn't mean that I fly over deadlines. I don't like missing deadlines and I don't like being late for people. So I'm not someone who is chaotic in that sense, but I am, you know, gosh, you know, having said I'm never late, I am always running to everything. I am always arriving at events or at people's houses for parties or dinner with wet hair because I haven't had time to dry it you know it's it's just that I think I'm just wired that way um uh, you know I I, apart I have to say conversely apart from when it comes to traveling trains and planes I I always I don't like rushing for trains and planes so I will always turn up a little bit earlier and and get myself a coffee but I think yeah I think one I mean I hope one day the future holds a lovely organized peaceful writer Amanda and I can wake up and brew myself a lovely coffee and wander (laughs) to my study and sit down and write 1500 words and then go and I don't know it's just that even saying that it sort of feels like it's a it's an unattainable goal that will just never happen to me but um yeah lastly on the day um on the days when it is hard and the words aren't coming out have you learned anything along the way any small little tips or tricks for you something maybe an idiosyncrasy that is just so niche it's not worth reporting but I promise you it is like anything that's tiny that just just helps you get them down that day um I mean you know this is where I I have I I don't feel proud of the way I write because I, I I do suffer from that horrendously badly so I I try and be cross with myself and I try and tell myself that everybody else has jobs and they don't have the privilege of sort of, you know, waking up one day and just feeling like they don't want to be, you know, a nurse or don't want to be, you know, going to London like my husband has to do and commuting. Um, So I do try and be a little bit tough on myself and just say, look, you're not allowed to indulge this. But on the other hand, realistically, I can spend hours staring at the screen and flipping between Twitter or rightmove.co.uk or whatever it is that's grabbed my um, attention. So I think in terms of things, I'm not, again, I'm someone who is easily bored, I think. Um, And I'm often 
I get addicted to the latest fad and it will work for me and I'll think my whole life has changed. And then, you know, two weeks later, I found I've drifted back into bad habits. But things that have happened to me in fads have been writer races with friends. So uh, just sort of, you know, being, uh, having a friend and and we say, right, we're going to write from now until, I don't know, 10 o'clock and then we'll check in and see how many words we've done. That has worked um, for a time. I'm actually, after you and I have spoken today, I've got a friend, two friends who are on deadline to the end of July, middle of August, and we are about to start doing exactly that, having a a sort of verbal contract of what we pledged to each other. And I'm hoping that that will be enough to to kick me in. But generally, I have to be very firm with myself. I have to turn off the internet. I have to shut the door and I have to say, just write. You are not allowed to not write today. Just write. And my husband will be also, he's quite complicit in trying to get me to write. So he'll suddenly say, you know, I'd really like to read a chapter tonight. Can you get me, can you, can you get it down? So uh, that helps. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, we'll have more from Amanda in just a sec. Just a little bit of business to clear up before we do. Uh, I've just come back from a holiday. Uh, It went very well. Thank you very much. Uh, if you so that means if you are waiting on Patreon goodies, just bear with me while I get them all sorted. Uh, if you want to be on that list for merch, you need to help us out over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. You can get small bits of merch on there, token of thanks for our support, that kind of stuff. You can even get your new book to sponsor this show. So if you love what we do, if you've learned anything along the way that has helped the way that you tell your stories, if you're enjoying the fact we've tried to get inspiration to you every week through lockdown then please do say thanks to us with a dollar or so every month. It really helps the show out, I promise. A little goes an incredibly long way. You can do that 
support us over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Right, let's get back to it with part two of this week's episode. Uh, We're talking to Amanda Jennings about her new novel, The Storm. Now, in this half, we talk about how she plots and how much she knows or rather doesn't know about the plot. You can also hear about all the drafts that she does, and there are a lot of them. Up, up to like 13 or something ridiculous and we talk about um how it changes between episode uh, between draft one and maybe draft two and how, how she even wants to change things now and we pick things up talking about lockdown you see we recorded this a few months ago like right in the middle of being stuck at home of every day being the same of not knowing when it was all going to change how did she feel in that time how was it being creative when there was nothing there to inspire you I don't want to admit it because it feels there's so much serious stuff going on and there are so many people who are having a a, a horrendous time, a sad time, a difficult time, a worrying time. Um, So it feels rather flippant to sort of say and, you know, put my hand against my forehead and say, I'm struggling creatively to do this. But actually I am and, and I'm not alone. I know there are other people in creative industries who are struggling. It's difficult when the world outside is so new and unusual and it sort of trumps whatever imagination you've got in your head. What's going on outside is is even more mad and weird and wonderful and fascinating and unusual. So it's very difficult to disengage from that because I actually found this not just with the pandemic, but with the politics that was raging since 2016. It was just sort of every single, I'd say every single day, but actually you turned on the radio or, or opened up social media and on the hour it was changing. It was this, this, the, the sands were shifting so rapidly that it was fascinating to watch and I, I found it very difficult to disengage um, and actually I wrote the storm through that so I really had to battle to sit myself down and disengage um, and I have had to periodically go on social media breaks where I totally uh, turned down you know take away all my all my um, accounts so I can't even get on um, but the pandemic this 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 recent lockdown has been different for me because I have the family around me. I'm fortunate um, that I have older children. So I had my daughter who's just finished university. She was in lockdown with us with her boyfriend and my 18-year-old and our 14-year-old. So we had a busy house. Um, And that was quite distracting, just not having that. You know, I was describing it to them, saying that when they leave at at 8 o'clock in the morning, there's all this bustle and getting ready for school and and it's all like, where's this? And you're going to be late. And And then suddenly the door shuts and it's very, very peaceful. Um, and although I learned to write, as we spoke about earlier, I learned to write in the chaos of, of motherhood and the chaos of a house, obviously for the last, um, how old is Lexi now? So for the last nine years, I've been writing, um, in, in the peace and quiet. So it is distracting having that all around as well. And like I said, I've, I've sort of set up the mutual aid group for the, for the village and, did a lot of that because there were so many people that were there shielding, were not able to shop or pick up prescriptions. And there was a, a hole there that needed filling as well. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been a difficult time, but I'm just, you know, as you said, a hundred days in, I've slightly got to the stage now where I'm like, you know, we need to, you need to crack on and just disengage and get this written or at least compartmentalize what is going on outside with what you have to do. Because, you know, I'm contracted. It's a job now. I I do have to deliver something. Well, you mentioned that for the last few years, you were head down in the storm and amongst everything that's going on. Um, 
can you tell me, Amanda, about the very first moment that the idea for what became this story came in came into your head? Um, like, the, what was that? What was the the light bulb? What was the elevator pitch? How did it present itself to you? The very first idea. Okay, I mean that's it's interesting because actually the very first idea, I suppose, is quite different to sort of the the idea that developed. As I told you before, you know, there's a lot of notebook time um, with working out where I want to go with something. But I was down in Cornwall um, where. The, my previous book, The Cliff House, is set, and I was doing a little bit of publicity for that. Um, had been going to bookshops and tours, and I decided to get up early one morning before sunrise, and um, I took a drive around where my 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 mother's side of the family's from, so sort of Penzance area, and went down to the fishing the fishing port of Newlyn and had. A walk around the streets of Newlyn. Sort of, it was winter time, probably October, November time. So it was quite winter. It was quite wet, um, and it was very atmospheric and very deserted. But obviously, there was still, you know, people were, were sort of busying around in the fishing with the fishing industry, and and I suddenly realised that I would quite like to write something about that was set in the fishing industry that was set around one night where everything went wrong. So I'd started to read around the fishing industry and, and it, it's one of the most dangerous jobs. A trawler fisherman is one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. Um, and uh, I, the more research I started doing, the more I thought this is actually something I really love to write about, a, real, a really sort of traumatic event at sea that then has spiralling effects as the men come off, come off the trawler and they're dealing with what happened at sea and how that feeds into them having one night in the, in the community and getting drunk and in the pub and, and, and things spiralling from there and going wrong. Um, and I wanted to, the way I look at my books tend to have something that's happened in the past then that then affects um, people in the future. So I then, came up with the story of uh, of my heroine if you like Hannah who is married to a man that really really cannot quite understand why she's married to him and I had the dual idea of wanting to write about what sometimes when you see men or, or and women in in relationships that are affected by domestic abuse not violent domestic abuse in this case but coercive control um, you, you often hear people saying, well, I don't understand why why she or he didn't leave. Um, and I wanted to pose that question uh, and have a specific reason that was set in their history of why she didn't leave. There's a lot going on. You've, you, you're, covering, you're covering quite a few different uh, t- topics and, and themes there. You said something towards the end that that, that was quite fascinating. Where you, well, it, it was all gold, but you know what I mean? Like that really did, did just... Uh, set the fire going you said um my books tend to be have have things in the past that affect things in the present um how much does that come into play when you are creating new ideas when you have an initial idea it's quite hard for me to kind of articulate this when you have an idea how much are you thinking right i need it to be something in the past that affects what's happening in the future and why why do you keep coming back to that motif? Yeah, uh, yeah. No, it's a really. I, I just think I, I'm really. I am really fascinated by how by the long reaching effects of a certain event. So rather than for me, rather than being interested in the 
the who done it, if you like. Um, I am. I, I have always all of my books, all, all the ones written so far, have all been tied up with the why done it, and that's what fascinates me. Uh, for my second book, for example, um, I think this sort of articulates it in a way that brings it back into my experience. So, my husband was at um, he he won a choral scholarship to to a to a, um, a a boarding prep school he was at the local school and his mum and the dad thought that this would be a sort of opportunity that he shouldn't he shouldn't turn down so he went to this this boarding prep school when he was really quite young um to to do to be a choral you know a chorister um and he always told me he always told me that that was a a dark time in his life and that there were there were boys there that were not having a great time of it and um, he never spoke of it with fondness. In fact, he didn't speak about it at all. And um, a few years into our, well, probably about 10 years into our relationship, um, maybe a little bit longer even, but we were settled and had uh, had all of our children, I think, or at least two of them. And he got a phone call from um, a police officer while he was at work and she said, you know, could I speak to Christopher Jennings? Um, and he and he immediately said, "Is this to do with my school?" Um, which was twenty odd years before. And she said, "It is." You know, how how did you know? And he said, "I just I've been waiting for this phone call for twenty years." And he came home, and it was like it was literally that that lid of Pandora's box. You know, as if someone had pulled a scab off, and everything that he had sort of just dismissed with me as sort of just a dark time in his life came sort of pouring out. And I found him at the computer in the middle of the night. He was researching all the kids that he'd been at school with, working out who had been, there was a couple of teachers who were being historically investigated, who had been victims of these teachers and what had happened to them. And he would just sort of kept coming and saying, oh, you know, I've just found another one hasn't, has had a terrible life or this person or that. And, and, and it was, it fascinated me it fascinated me from a writer's point of view. Obviously, it distressed me as his wife, but um, it, it was that, that you could bury so much emotion and, and, and have a completely normal life. He'd never sort of, you know, you wouldn't know that he had had this sort of difficult time. He wasn't hurt himself. It was just what he witnessed around him or the atmosphere around him. And so I just felt... You know, I wrote a book about uh, sort of based on based on those on those feelings on someone who had buried something for two for 20 years and, and, and someone returned to their life and it opened it all up again. And, and therefore, it's sort of like putting a hand grenade into your life. And I think it's that hand grenade moment that I that I am fascinated by. I'm curious about how you get there each time. So we're taking things back to the storm when when you when you've got that initial idea, you and you know, you, you, you want there to be a, something that happens out at sea in, a, in, a, in the fishing industry, which is affecting what's happening today. What, what, I mean, this is quite like a loose, open question, so kind of run with it as you want. But what happens next for you as a writer? You're not that much of a planner, but you've got your notebooks. And you, and you did say that what the storm became was quite different to the initial idea. Uh, how are you how are you what work are you doing on it to move it from that idea to you actually sitting down and typing it on the screen yeah and actually hearing you say that back I I do question this now six books in I do wonder whether I am more of a planner than I think I am it's just that it doesn't happen in in a sort of formal way so I do have as, as we've discussed these notebooks and it is literally like I mind map everything so I'll sort of say oh I, you know 
that there's a characteristic of my heroine's character and, and then I want to have a, a scene, for example, that would demonstrate that, but we'll set that back in the past. And then actually, all oh, actually that scene I've just written that demonstrates the characteristic I want to show in the present well that opens up a whole different sort of sort of relationship with with that character and and so things like I sort of see it as a spider web it's sort of it's sort of you know it, it reaches out like like um, an ink blot on a, on a you know drop of ink on some blotting paper it sort of it sort of ekes out and grows bigger and more more complex and the web grows tighter and stronger um and often when I'm writing a, a scene will come about because I've sort of maybe I've written something that makes one of the characters seem very unsympathetic and I'll think probably quite um, manipulatively, but then we are writers and that's what we do for a living. But I, I will then sort of think, well, I need to get my readers back on board. I need them. I don't want them to to lose sympathy with Hannah now. I need them back on board. So I might write a scene in, in the back in the backstory, for example, that, that then that then warms her up and, and shows a different side of her character, which hopefully allows the reader to feel sympathy with her again. So for, for me, it's just an organic sort of... Um, yeah increasing and magnifying and turning to, and it, within each rewrite as well I'll go through it and I'll think Do you know what that character's now that's now irrelevant we don't need her or him so I'll get rid of her but then likewise I'll read something and it'll feel like a sort of little thread of gold in in the grey and I'll think actually we'll turn the heat up on that one we'll, we'll bring that to the fore so it's all about really I, I think I think I, I, I um, equate it often to having to a sculptor having a, a lump of clay and then gradually just shaping it and refining it and making making something recognisable come out of this sort of ingredients that you have before you, if you like. Well, I don't know the ending at all, so I don't know where I'm going, um, and that doesn't scare me at all because actually I know now that the ending will come once I really know the characters. So like you said, I've sort of, you know, I've got this shadowy set of characters that I know vaguely, their names, their age, are they good looking? Are they not? Are they, are they confident? Are they shy? Are they, so I have a vague idea, but then as the, as the books are rewritten, I'll start to sort of, you know, you could ask me, for example, a question about one of my characters in the storm and I'll tell you, you know, what's their favourite cereal. I won't even have to, to to think. I will know now exactly what Hannah's favourite cereal is or because I know the characters so well. So I think when I start off, I have a vague, a vague direction. I sort of, you know, if I know what I'm going to do that day. If we're going to use the car analogy, I know we're going on a picnic and I know we're going to head north, <laughs> but I don't know the details. So I think, uh, and, and also from from the, that collection of notebooks, I will also have probably, I don't know, maybe I wouldn't want to put a number on it, but let's say between eight and 20 key scenes that are very visual and are very locked in my head, um, which will sort of form stepping stones for me to move from one section of the journey to the next um and it, 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 it's, a, it's sort of a sh- yeah a sh- it, I, I would think if we were going to use your roadmap analogy we would say that sort of someone has sort of just given me some vague directions and I'm sort of following them and I think I can rem- remember where we're going but if we take a wrong turn it doesn't matter we'll get there in the end so I think that's probably a little bit more how I write um and in a much more narrowed down day-to-day style of that knowing what you're going to write you, you did say earlier as well um uh, you, you mentioned a planned scene so if you know that you want to sit there and try and get as much of a chapter as you can down um 
how do you know what you're writing each day? That is a very good question. I think that that is probably um, at first draft stage um, instinctive. So I think I will, um, for example, if I take, it's not the storm, but if I take the book I'm writing at the moment, I've got three characters. Um, I'm being quite um, uh, rigid about the fact that they are alternating. So I'm one character followed by the next, followed by the next, and then that repeats with the same, you know, one after the other. So, and I will, will, will wake, I, I know um, for example, my characters are just, dis- just dis- one of them has just decided to buy a farm to set up a commune. When that character um, comes back in, in for, for its turn, for her turn, I know that she's now going to describe the day they arrive on the farm. Do not tell me how I've decided that. I have no idea. That's just, I suppose that's just the, where the instinctive bit comes in, um, and and I, I suppose it's because there's nothing of note particularly that happens between them deciding they're going to do this thing and then three months later they are embarking. And if we had to go through the whole three months, it would be incredibly dull for everybody concerned, uh, not least myself. So I think it's probably instinctive, the bits of the story that I feel are are the ones that advance the narrative, but also going to be interesting. Um, That's not to say that those chapters might be cut at a later date if I'm reading through and I think they're dragging or they're slow or they're not doing what I want to do they don't tell anything more about the characters or the story then I will be very happy to cut them I don't have any sort of um, set idea about that at all each stage is 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 approached very separate to the last stage so my first draft I just want to get the words down and tell the story and get something to work with my lump of clay and then in each rewrite and it can be anything up to 10 or 11 rewrites 12 sometimes um, it will change again those those veins of gold that I've seen will come to the fore everything else will be knocked back some boring bits will be cut um and I think and occasionally I'll you know I'll get to the sort of eighth three right and I'll suddenly think you know what we need we need some we need a different character's voice here and and, a new character will arrive or one of the characters that's had a sort of bit part might suddenly find their voice um so it's all quite organic really when you're doing so many rewrites how are they changing so perhaps not when a new character suddenly uh, springs to the fore but what's going on between rewrite 10 and rewrite 11 a lot of tinkering <laughs> my my agent has to actually take the book away from me before before I start saying oh do you know what that whole chapter is really boring let's ditch it because and she's like no it's not boring if you haven't read it 400 times it's absolutely let's just keep that in so I just tinkering I'll take a when I'm rewriting even if you gave me one of the books that I've already written and published now I would want to shape every sentence again it's um it's it's a compulsion and I will sit there and for me as well I think sentence has sentences and paragraphs have to have a rhythm so I like I, I, I like I like to think that if you've structured the sentence in a right in the right way then you're helping the reader um, can you pick apart that rhythm sorry very yeah. quickly just because a few writers have mentioned the rhythm and it just seems this uh, it, 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 it's not tangible you know I, who knows what a rhythm is what what just because a rhythm is good for you it might be completely different for someone else what, what in your mind what is the perfect beat and rhythm of of, a, of one of your sentences well I mean again I think you you sort of probably hit on it just you know it, within that question is it's actually very it, there isn't a there isn't a set 
rhythm I think that's what gives a book and a writer their voice it's it's each if, if, a, if a book or if a writer is writing a book and and they keep to their rhythm and their rhythm is the say you know that their rhythm is instinctive then that that is what people talk about when they say a writer's voice I suppose um for me I just like it to feel balanced I like a, a set so if I'm reading it aloud or I'm reading it in my head it's almost there is no set rhythm but it's almost got to have a you know a, a beat it's got to sort of have a beat underneath it so that it, it doesn't jar for me I think if it if it, it's when it it jars that you you know you lose your rhythm you lose your sort of concentration you want a reader to be immersed in the words I suppose so I think you know it, it has, it, it, there's nothing prescriptive about it I wouldn't be able to analyze it to that extent I don't think certainly not in a sort of academic way but it's just again I've mentioned the word before but instinct I think um, what feels right and what sounds right and I think for me it's not just the sentences it's the shape on the page the paragraphs I you know you don't want to have you don't want to have long sentence after long sentence after long sentence. You want to, for me, I, I like to punctuate that with with shorter sentences. Sometimes one word, sometimes a new line. Um, I suppose a little bit, you know, a little bit like the the, the sort of the things that I might have learned from poetry or reading poetry. I suppose is possible. I don't, um, like I said, I haven't really haven't really thought about it from an academic point of view. But I certainly know that I like to have a the rhythm has to sit well with me. You seem to me to be a writer that holds at the front of their mind more than others I've chatted to uh, the idea of, of themes. Um, you, met, you talked about themes earlier on. How conscious and how, for want of a better word, forced, I don't mean forced in a negative way, but you know what I mean, um, when, you're, when you're writing this story, how much at the front of your brain is, are the, the, the themes of your piece? How do you decide what they are and and how do you navigate them and and put them through your story yeah well they're not forced in the terms of the fact that obviously you know as I've said a few times nothing is planned so it starts off and off I go so I don't sort of have in my notebooks it doesn't say this is a book about guilt or this is a book about um prison or, or or isolation or whatever it is I just know that um I just I just like there's a sort of I don't I think it's, a, it's that sort of foreshadowing and echoing people talk about foreshadowing if you like I suppose that's what I mean about theme it's a sort of idea that that if you're writing a book about isolation for example it's a neat little uh, you know neat little device just to have a few other um, uh, sort of moments of isolation or loneliness so that people can draw parallels I would never do that I hope I would never do that so that it feels like a brick in the face um, and I wouldn't necessarily put in the blurb or even when I'm selling a book well this is a book about isolation and you have to know that to enjoy it that's not that at all it's more just it, it feels it feels you know neat to me I suppose like so the one I'm writing now the Bodmin Moor I've got on the wall um that happens to be about um, isolation is a theme in that one because of one of my characters. But actually, I've also set it on Bodmin Moor, and I didn't set it on Bodmin Moor because I was a book about it was a book about isolation. I just think that's happened instinctively. It's a sort of 
you know, where would a person who is isolating themselves from the world want to live? Well, not in the centre of London, or well, maybe centre of London, but that's a different different type of isolation. But, you know, they wouldn't set themselves in a very warm, small community and go down and, and involve themselves in that community. Therefore, they would be more likely to go and seek out solitary um solitary space on Bodmin Moor that I suppose that's how it works for me it's a it's um it's not an exact science um, I have to say it's just it's just something I enjoy doing and I enjoy having a you know I enjoy a book that has a sort of over overarching overarching theme in terms of emotions and uh, the, the areas of, of the sort of human condition, I suppose, for want of a better word, um, that I'm exploring. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Amanda Jennings for coming on the show. Uh, if you like what you've heard, if you want to grab a copy of The Storm, please do it using the link in the podcast notes, wherever you're listening, and, and over at writersroutine.com. Uh, then we'll just get a little kickback, tiny but very important amount from, from the books that you buy. Um, uh, while you're at writersroutine.com, by the way, you can get in contact with us there. Use the contact form, obviously, um, and just let us know what you think. That'd be really handy. Uh, and you can leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts and, and say hello there as well. That would really help people who need the help of our authors find the help of our authors and make sure you're subscribed as well. That way, next week's episode with Men of Van Prague will automatically appear in your podcast feed. Uh, She'll be on to chat to us about uh, her new novel. It's a fantasy. It's called The Sisters Grimm. And it's a brilliant take on all those old-fashioned fairy tales. That's next week. Also, give us a follow on Twitter. If you can, we are at WritersPod there. Um, And support the show on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash writers routine. A little will really go a long way there. And I will see you next week with Mena Van Prague on the show. Bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.